Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. So glad you've decided to join us again today. We really hope that this content enriches your life and your ministry this week. In today's episode, we have Jimmy Adcox, who is teaching about what a theology looks like that is neither progressive or legalistic. He discusses some of the issues with our sentiments toward others defining our beliefs. He describes issues with redefining historic terms and trying to accept non-biblical practices. So he kind of discusses, okay, we don't want to be so far uh, legalistic or rules-based, but we also don't want to be on the other side that's the complete other side that we've just gone progressive. What does it look like? Try to be almost in the middle, biblically based, looking at what the Bible says and understanding the best way as the Bible teaches. Let's go ahead and check this out today together. I'm Jimmy Adcox, and I'm from Jonesboro, Arkansas with the Southwest Church. Uh, I preached there for a little over 44 years and uh, kind of stepped out of the preaching lead minister role about a year ago, and now I'm continuing <coughs> part-time doing discipleship. So uh, having a good time and uh, kind of thrilled about where we are and where we're going. And uh, it's, it's uh, it'd be interesting to hear your stories and learn a little bit about what's going on with you and in your churches, especially as it relates to disciple-making and a lot of the things that we've, we're talking about this week. How many of you are at a new gathering for the first time? Okay, I thought maybe since we're in Indianapolis, we probably had a lot of people that could come uh, a little closer. So, uh, really, 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 really glad that you're here. Um, when I prepared my slides, I didn't quite anticipate this small a TV screen. So, uh, there will be some print a little smaller. There are some closer seats, so if you decide, I think I need to get a little closer, even while it's going on, just get up and, and move where you can see a little bit. Um, when I when I look at uh, we're going to explore several things today in this in this session, and I'm going to give you a little overview up front of where we're going. Um, there's going to be a lot of lists, uh, and I'm using the list just to kind of explore. Like we'll talk about what what does progressivism look like, and so we'll be looking at a lot of different tendencies and characteristics. So there's going to be a lot of lists that we're just going to kind of touch on to try to paint a picture of, of what progressivism is and then what legalism is. And then we'll talk about some of how each of those are dead-end streets and neither one of them are going to accomplish uh, what God wants accomplished. Uh, we're going to talk about how legalistic tendencies manifest themselves to the world, the world around us, how they see us when we kind of tend toward that legalistic side. We're going to talk about what drives people to progressivism, at least uh, what some tendencies are. And we're going to talk a little bit about what drives people to legalism. And then we want to come back and uh, talk about the third way, because this is about you know, God's way. I, I remember hearing Bobby use this terminology, the renew way, neither legalism nor progressivism. Uh, it's not just the renew way. <laughs> I think this is God's way. And so I'd probably retitle this if I were... If I were doing it again, uh, but it, but it is kind of what renew. It's it's the vision of renew. Is how do we how do we break out of this legalistic tendency that a lot of our churches uh, sink into, and this progressivism that our culture seems to be pushing us into? Are those the only options? And what does vibrant New Testament Christianity look like? You know, when you when you kind of break out of these two two extremes that our world finds itself in, and we begin to chart a course that's that's filled with kingdom power. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what that third way kingdom of God vision looks like. 
and then we're, we'll talk just a little bit about uh, how God changes the world. Um, that's just going to be a little closing segment we're going to do. So can I lead us in a prayer? And, uh, and then let's, let's just kind of jump in. And we're small enough today that uh, I, I may get to going and talking, but raise your hand, make a point, ask a question. I mean, I think we've got room to do that in a class this size. So I, I, I welcome the conversation. If I can get out of my preacher mode and think a little bit about that, I'll, I'll try to prompt some of that as we go along. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this group of people who are here today. Uh, Father, I know they come from different churches. Uh, they love you. They want to see your cause advance in this world. Uh, they are seeking your direction, your guidance. They're seeking your resilience in a world where uh, sometimes we are being more, more opposed than perhaps we've been accustomed in our culture. Uh, but Father, you're still on your throne and you still rule and reign. Give us discernment. Help us to discern your will in the midst of a world that seems so confused about so many things. Give us clarity and give us a voice that we might know how to, to speak your word in ways that people can hear and listen and consider. Father, we pray for a leading of your spirit to give us clarity and to give us words and to give us resilience. And Father, we just pray that your powerful gospel will break through into the hearts and lives of people around us and bring them to you where they can find the fullness of life that you intended for us to know all along. Father, we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, um, just a few things by way of introduction. Uh, we know we live in a very polarized world, right? It seems like everything, at least everything we hear through the media, exploits the, the, the greatest extremes. And so that kind of draws people into those controversies and people side on one side or the other. So you know what happens on Facebook and uh, other social media where, uh, uh, you know, they kind of see where you go and so they just feed you more of it. Whatever it is you find you're interested in, if you're leaning one way or you're leaning the other, they're going to feed you more of it to keep you online. And so you, people end up just hearing the same thing over and over and over again, and they never really hear any point of view. And so we get increasingly polarized, and the language gets more bitter and more confrontational, and people feel more threatened. And so we all know we're living in that kind of environment right now. And, uh, and so sometimes it paralyzes us, because we don't want to get caught up in that. And it seems if we say anything... One side or the other is going to jump all over it, and we're going to get sucked into this controversy none of us want to be a part of, right? And so sometimes I think we, we become paralyzed. And, I, and honestly, I think I went through a little period of time where I felt paralyzed, because if you don't know how to speak, even if you do know how to speak, <laughs> this politically correct culture in which we live will take whatever you say and turn it against you and it, and turn people against you. And so it's just really easy, isn't it, to kind of freeze up and think, you know, I don't want to do more damage than I do good. And so we're, 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 I think we're in this place where we see what's happening around us. We're getting a little bit more clarity about what we need to do, but sometimes we're still searching for the words to know how to have these conversations in constructive ways, and you can't do that with some people anyway. And so it's, it's, it's a challenge. And then I think sometimes we're paralyzed, not only because we don't know what to say, but because we're fearful. We're afraid. We're, we're, where is this going? What's, what's happening? This is not, 
I don't want to get into the, the nationalistic thing at all, but we, we can't help but look back and say, this, this country's not what I remember it being. <laughs> how, how did this shift happen so quickly and so completely as the trend and the direction we seem to be on? Um, and so there's a tendency to either retreat or to strike out. And there has to be a third way, a more constructive way forward than to do that. Um, and so we're going through this time. A lot of people in our churches are going through this. You, know, you hear a lot about construction and deconstruction. A lot of people are hearing all of these cultural things and the attacks that are being made on Christians and they're unloving and they're hateful and other things like that. And so they, they back up and begin to think, you know, maybe I re- need to rethink my faith. And so they allow themselves to start reconsidering what they've always believed. Now, sometimes that's a healthy thing. I mean, I believe some things in the past that weren't healthy, right? I had to deconstruct some things in my thinking in order to reconstruct what's more accurately God's will. But there's a real danger in some of the deconstruction that's going on today, and we're losing a lot of people who are getting caught up in progressive Christianity and kind of losing their confidence in biblical clarity and the danger of progressive Christianity is that sometimes it can actually end up going so far that it leads to agnosticism or atheism. Because by the time you, by the time you formulate that new set of beliefs and then you are disillusioned by it and it doesn't really make, have the impact you expected it to have, it can become disillusioned with the whole thing. And so if you're in church leadership, you are having conversations or you will be having conversations with people who are in the process of deconstructing their faith And you'll find people who are in the process of reconstructing it. I'm thinking of a lady at Southwest right now who went through that deconstruction phase and she she came to Southwest where we are and she's been in the process of reconstructing. And and she's, you know, she's coming, sometimes it's coming out of legalism and moving toward progressive Christianity and then kind of reconstructing to find your way again. And so we need to be careful to be able to have those open-minded conversations with people because they're, they're just, it's, it's not a bad thing to, to be going through establishing why you believe what you believe. So we need to give people room to do that. We need to know how to have those conversations with them. Um, so there's this secular culture all around us uh, that seems to be undermining what it is that we believe, and it strikes hard, and our people are feeling it, and it, it's creating some questions and doubts for them. So we need to help them find some clarity. So let's just jump in and let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about some signs of progressive Christianity. Um, I drew these, these five points from Alyssa Childers' article, Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity, just as a way of kind of walking around it and exploring it in case you've got some questions about, about what it is. So first of all, it tends to have a lowered view of the Bible. Um, deep down there develops this attitude of, personal beliefs over biblical mandates. So people are thinking, they're thinking, they're being shaped by the culture of the world and they're they're beginning to think, you know, maybe that's not what the Bible says. Or they're actually elevating their own personal opinions and sentiments sometimes above what the Bible says. Um, You'll hear people say things like sometimes like, well, the Bible is a human book. Uh, meaning that it contains the Word of God perhaps, but it was produced by humans and it's got human flaws and frailties in it. Uh, Or you may hear somebody say, I disagree with the Apostle Paul on that issue. Uh, The first time I heard somebody say that, I thought, 
Well, um, you know, who determines what, what Paul said is right and what Paul said is wrong? So does that, become, does that take us back here, that my personal beliefs and sentiments become more authoritative than what Paul actually said in Scripture? And if you throw it all up in the air to decide what Paul said that's right and what's wrong, who decides, you know? Uh, but you'll hear things like that. And there's, there's this dichotomy that begins to exist between Paul and the Gospels. So you'll go to the Gospels and just kind of talk about love, but Paul was trying to speak into the culture of his own day, but what he said was shaped by that culture too. And so you, you know you have to take some of what Paul says with a grain of salt, and that's a very popular thing in progressive Christianity. Or the Bible contains the Word of God. Um, which means, you know, yeah, you can learn about God there, but it's, it's not the authoritative and infallible Word of God. It's just a testimony of the Word of God. So just kind of that lowered view of the Bible where what we think, what we feel, our sentiments begin to somehow have more authority in what we choose to believe than what the Bible actually says. Here's a second sign. Feelings are emphasized over facts. And that, that's similar. Uh, personal experiences, feelings, and opinions tend to be valued over objective truth. Feelings become the ultimate authority. So you'll hear people say things like this, that Bible verse just doesn't resonate with me. So you know, there's that, that questioning, that undermining. Or you may hear somebody say, I thought homosexual practice was a sin until I made some of my, met some of my gay friends. Well, you know, basically they're saying the sentiment of these people and my feelings for them determine what I believe about the topic. And it's, I mean, it's good to have friends and there are a lot of good people doing a lot of things. I mean, there are a lot of good people who may not line up with biblical ethics, but our sentiments toward them doesn't really change what, what's right and what's wrong. Or you might hear somebody say, I just can't believe good people can be lost. So our sentiments become more important in Scripture. Feelings are emphasized over facts. Uh, here's another characteristic. Oh, here's a quote I found. This, there's, a, there's a guy who was a minister, a pastor, and he kind of left ministry and wanted to do cartoons. So he does these theological cartoons from his vantage point. He's called the Naked Pastor. You find his stuff on nakedpastor.com. But it, it represents some of this. So he has this little cartoon where this guy turns to the lady and says, what if we used love to determine what the Scriptures mean instead of using the Scriptures to determine what love means? Would there be different outcomes? And yeah, especially if we're defining what love is. So does our sense of what's loving or unloving become the standard by which we read Scripture? Or do we let God determine what love is? So that's kind of a common thing that I think illustrates what we were just talking about. Here's a third characteristic of progressive Christianity. Essential doctrines are open for reinterpretation. So there are really no sacred cows. All tradition and doctrine pass through flawed humans, especially in regard to moral issues and cardinal doctrines. Um, so moral issues we know have just, you know, we, we know there's no sacred cows there, at least in terms of what our culture does and what progressive Christianity does things that have been morally determined for generation after generation after generation, all of a sudden there's new insights and we, we begin to change our mind about what Scripture says. But even with some cardinal doctrines, um, some people begin to, to reject the idea of the atonement because uh, they begin to see it as child sacrifice. How, how could God give His Son to die for us? 
and it began to question that whole the whole thing about Scripture. And, and how does that translate when you're trying to, to speak the gospel to the world and the world hears it through that lens? Um, so you begin to you begin to begin to kind of question all of the, the major doctrines. So somebody might say the resurrection doesn't have to be factual to speak truth. In other words, so it's not a historical resurrection necessarily, but it just kind of reminds us that life can be made new. It's a symbol. It's a metaphor. I'm not saying everybody that has... There's a continuum along this line, so there might be people who have some hints of progressive Christianity with, through their struggles and questions. doesn't mean they've gone full-blown in these extremes. Okay, So we're, we're, just, we're just kind of talking generalities about some things that might, some tendencies that people might have. Uh, the church's views on sexuality are archaic and need to be reinterpreted for a modern era. That's, that's a lot of what's going on around us. We're more enlightened than the ancient early Christian leaders. Uh, and so I, I see a lot of that where, um, you know, there's a lot of things they didn't know. So, for example, about homosexuality, they'd say uh, they weren't really familiar with committed homosexual relationships. No, it was, it was instead, uh, you know, men with boys or... So they didn't really know about that. So the Bible really doesn't speak to that. Um, and, and so we, we, we're enlightened about some things that Scripture really wasn't addressing, that things really weren't going on in their day and time. So an essential doctrines are open for a reinterpretation. The fourth one is historic items are sometimes redefined. So sometimes you'll hear people using the same terminology that we would use. They just don't mean the same thing by it. And it takes a little while for you to begin to, to realize that. So somebody in progressive Christianity might talk about the inspiration of Scripture, but they might mean it's inspired much like you're inspired to write a poem. Or I feel an inspiration to develop a sermon. But that's different than the inspiration from God that you and I have historically believed. Love becomes a catchword for everything non-confrontive, Unpleasant, that should say, uh, and affirming. Um, I'm sorry. Catchword for everything non-confrontive, pleasant, and affirming. That, that's what love means. Is you never want to offend anybody. Uh, in other words, the, you hear people talk about love, and yet the definition for it is maybe very different than what you would think. God wouldn't, wouldn't punish sinners. He's love. Sure, the Bible's authoritative, but we've misunderstood it for 2,000 years. Recent interpretations over 2,000 years of Orthodox Christianity. That's, it's amazing how that's, that's happening now. Uh, somebody might say it's not our job to talk about sin to people. It's our job just to love them. Uh, and I, I heard a minister say that not too long ago. Um, I thought he was uh, um, kind of gay-affirming. And then I found out he really wasn't. He just thought, you ought to you just let people decide for themselves instead of you know speaking biblical truth into that. Uh, and that's what that last one is. I just think we should, uh, should let them decide. So historic terms are redefined. And then the fifth one, the gospel shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. Now, I want to say this very strongly on the front end. Of course, ministry to and defense of the oppressed is a vital Christian ethic. We should be concerned about the oppressed. We should be concerned about righteousness and justice. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? 
So I have a little bit of a fear that this reaction to progressive Christianity is actually turning us the wrong direction when it comes to issues of social justice. And we're not going to have a hearing in the world if we don't have a biblical view of social justice and believe that's important. I don't think the secular culture's view of justice is always a biblical view, but we should share the concern about justice and of the oppressed and so forth in our society. And I think, in fact, we should be leading the way in a healthy way. But we'll talk a little bit more about how, how the gospel helps do that. However, the core message of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus to save us from sin and death and reconcile all things to Himself. This is Jesus' ultimate way to liberate the world. Not going to come through political means. You know, it's, it's, it's going to come through the gospel. Um, so you might hear people say, sin doesn't separate us from God. We're made in His image and He calls us good. So solving social justice issues is not about sin and repentance and making things right. Uh, God calls us good, and so sin becomes not the issue. Sacrifice for sin is not necessary. That was a pagan practice borrowed to tell the story in Jesus in similar terms. No need to preach the gospel. Just show love by bringing justice to the oppressed and provision to the needy. So some people have the idea, you'll see a good thing being done in a community by a secular organization, and they'll say that's the kingdom of God breaking in. Well, the kingdom of God might bring food to the hungry, I mean, it does. I mean, our church, we want to do that as churches, don't we? We, we, want, to, we want to help people who are in homeless situations. Um, and that may be a consequence and a, um, a fruit of the kingdom of God. Or it might just be a secular culture who's, who's doing good in the community. But when the kingdom of God breaks in, it breaks in by the power of the Spirit of God. And so the very fact that some good be is being done doesn't necessarily mean that's the kingdom of God breaking in. It may be some influence of the kingdom of God that's helped those people. But the kingdom of God is always accompanied by the gospel. It's always accompanied by the power of the Spirit. It's always accompanied by life transformation. Uh, you're not doing all of kingdom work just by going out and doing good to others. That's a great thing to do. But there's more to kingdom transformation than that. Uh, but the gospel shifts from sin and redemption to, to mere social justice, I guess is a better way to say it. So that's, that's some of the signs of progressive Christianity that we wanted to talk about. Let's talk about some signs of legalism. Because I, I kind of grew up more in that culture. When most of you, how many of you would say I kind of grew up more in that legalistic culture? Um, some of these things are very similar that I'm going to say, and maybe I should have reduced them down to a, to a lesser number, but this, because they may sound like different ways of saying the same thing, but here, here are some of them. Legalism is equating the gospel with right thinking and right acting. Now, the gospel leads to right thinking and right acting, but the gospel is not a rule book. It, it's not just saying, here's the laws, keep them. And if you keep them, then that's the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, the powerful transformation that comes through the cross and the Spirit and the resurrection and all of that. It leads to right thinking and action. But if we start here without the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, uh, that's legalism. That's moralism. And I'm afraid we come across that way to the world a lot because we disagree with their moral ethics. So what do we do? We just say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Well, they don't even believe in Jesus. Why would we expect them to change what they believe if they haven't fallen in love with Jesus. They have no incentive. So we may come across to them as moralistic and legalistic, 
even if in other ways we're not. Does that make sense? So people need to hear the gospel first. Uh, signs of legalism, making works the justifying element of our salvation. Uh, works are the fruit of our salvation. But I'm not saved by what I do. And sometimes when we put the focus on that as the way to be saved, we are preaching a kind of legalism. Requiring more of people than the gospel requires. Uh, our churches do that, don't they? It's almost like become like us or you can't become Christians. It's kind of like in Acts 15, unless the Gentiles were willing to be circumcised, they couldn't come to Christ. So what are those things in our churches that we put in front of people that make it more difficult for them to convert that are unnecessary to their salvation? Maybe because just culturally, we're more comfortable if you're like this. So if you're willing to buy in to the way we do everything, uh, then you can come to Christ and we'll accept you as part of our fellowship. Uh, making laws where God has not made them. Um, turning traditions into laws. Making our traditions uh, just, you know, we enforce those on people. Focusing on the letter of the law to the neglect of the Spirit. So you can see how some of these are different ways of saying the same thing. Um, legalism also includes uh, looking for biblical patterns where there are none. Um, and in my early years, that's kind of how the church functioned. And I think there are still churches like that today. Uh, but they believe the Bible is a patternistic book. It's almost like the New Testament is kind of a New Testament Leviticus. And, and in what I was growing up, people would actually go to the New Testament looking. If there was any question that came up, they believed there would be some kind of pattern in the New Testament. And so you, what do you usually find what you're looking for, even if it's, even if it's not legitimate. Failing to distinguish between essential, important, and personal elements of faith. Uh, and Renew has, has a book on that. Um, but there are some things that are essential to the gospel. There are some things that are important, I mean critically important, that's not optional for us, that we need to grow in and learn about. And then there are just personal elements of faith. But if you don't distinguish between those three, three, three things, then they all become of equal importance, and that becomes a form of legalism. Low Christian view of freedom is a sign of legalism. Everything's got to be black and white. You know, there's a lot of things where there's just biblical principles that in a spirit of discernment, we have to discern what our response is going to be to situations. There are a lot of situations where, uh, where, where there's no laws and there's no rules. You could think about Romans 14 uh, and the differences that are there. Focusing on outward conformity over inner, inner transformation you can actually do damage to people by trying to manipulate and power them into certain behaviors without giving them an opportunity for heart change. Uh, and legalism has a tendency. That's why some people are so damaged by legalism. is because it, it's a coercive. It's, it's, it's power move. And, and, and hearts aren't given an opportunity to change and it becomes a destructive influence in people's lives. Legalism can lead us to become judgmental, proud, and self-righteous. I don't mean to say that everybody who's held certain legalistic views are these kinds of people. I've known people that were in somewhat legalistic churches that were sweet people and loving people and blessed people and faithful Christian people because we're all, we're all mistaken about some things. But there is a tendency, is there not, to become judgmental, proud, and self-righteous because... If I've got it right, I can't be saved unless I've got it right. 
then I convince myself I've got it right. And then I become judgmental of you because you don't have it right. And then I become very proud because I've got my act together. And then I have a sense of self-righteousness because I've achieved this perfect practice of what I believe the New Testament teaches. Elevating tradition above the gospel and mission. So this is one I think it might be helpful to think through in your own churches. Um, when push comes to shove, if a tradition that's not bound by Scripture becomes more important to me than the mission of God itself. Is that a form of legalism? Because I, I'm elevating personal human tradition over the mission of God. And you think about 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, I become all things to all men that I by all means might save some. In other words, you've got to lay aside. He, he could adapt to Jewish culture. He could adapt to the Gentile culture in ways that were not contrary to God's will because the mission of God was more important than his personal preferences or, or personal culture. And I think that's, that's part of our evangelistic uh, need. All right, let's talk a little bit about these two. Danger, dead-end streets. Now, surprisingly, there are similarities when you look at this list between the two. Progressivism and legalism both rely on human effort. Um, legalism says if you keep the law, well, you'll be saved. Progressivism says social justice comes through our own effort and our own performance. Um, and so both of them are trying to change the world uh, from a human perspective. We, we can do this. We can do this. Progressivism leaves behind the power of the gospel because you're, you're really proclaiming social justice. You're not really proclaiming the gospel. Social justice will come out of that, but, but it's got a misplaced focus. Legalism leaves behind the power of the gospel because it becomes about living up to the law instead of the power of the gospel transforming us from the inside out. Progressivism has the same values as the world, eventually. So you begin to say, well, what do you have to offer the world if your values are pretty much the same? Legalism can't relate to the world uh, it doesn't know how to communicate with the world. doesn't really have a message to the world other than you're doing it wrong, do it right, and here's how we say you should do it right. Um, progressivism disappoints because it's not going to bring in the kingdom of God. It, it, it can help people. It can bring some social justice through political means. But it's going to disappoint because it's never going to do what the kingdom of God is ultimately going to do. Isn't that right? Legalism often damages, hurts, and repels people for the very reasons we've already talked about. Um, progressivism destroys mission because you're not really proclaiming the gospel and repentance and converting people to Christ, power of the Spirit, and so forth. Let me just kind of run through these. Progressivism compromises biblical sexual ethics. It moves away from Orthodox Christianity. It's not, it's, it's not an on-ramp, but an off-ramp for people coming to faith. We're going to talk in a minute. One of the reasons I think people move toward progressivism is they think it will make the gospel, as they understand it, more attractive to the world. It gets some of those barriers out of the way that the world just can't, can't see. So they're looking for an on-ramp to help people come closer to God, but it often becomes an off-ramp where people completely lose their faith in God. You know, if you look back at some of the creeds, the Nicene Creed or Apostles' Creed or whatever, there, there's core things there that we would all agree are true. But, but those things begin to let 
Progressive Christianity, when it goes to its farthest extreme, doesn't look a lot alike a biblical Christianity. So I guess what's been considered orthodox for 2,000 years, now all of a sudden, yeah, now all of a sudden is not, not the truth. I say I missed a couple of these. On the legalism side, it creates stumbling blocks for mission. It neglects ministry to the oppressed. Um, maybe not always, but it tends to. There's a dead orthodoxy. You, you may hold all those orthodox principles, but there's no life in it. Because it's just outward, it's just knowledge and outward conformity instead of inner transformation. And we're saying that to the extreme. I mean, we, there's, there's good people who believe some legalistic things who've been transformed by the power of the gospel. I mean, I think I grew up in a church like that. I mean, I'm thankful for that church. It changed my life. Now, do I agree with everything I learned in those years? Not, no, not everything. I think, I think I've grown some. But, but they taught me to follow Jesus. So don't, don't hear me as being critical. I, I don't mean to be critical. Uh, but, but I think there, it creates obstacles and stumbling blocks to the power that God wants us to have for, through His gospel. Uh, and legalism can lead to boredom, irrelevance, control, and or self-righteousness. This comes from Tim Keller. Uh, how the world interprets our legalistic tendencies might be different than how we within the church do. He says the world presents it this way, or sees it this way, by wedding the Christian faith to right-wing American populism. That's how the world sees our legalistic tendencies, that we can somehow, with the use of power and leverage, impose our ethics on other people. And so it's power versus power. Um, now, I'm not going to get into the debate about to what degree are Christians involved in politics and all of that. I'd like to think there's, there's ways that we can do that that are healthy. But the world perceives us oftentimes as using our power block to block their power block, which is not a real conducive environment for the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, they're not seeing us as people who are teaching them grace and forgiveness. They see us as trying to overpower them and take, take charge. The world also perceives it as a shrill, harsh tone toward modern culture that shows little desire to attract or evangelism. When all we can do is just toss grenades into the world, how are they going to perceive Christians in the gospel? And what are we actually accomplishing with that shrill, harsh tone that just curses the darkness? Um, they need to see the light. We need to be the light. And then the third way they often perceive our legalism is in their resistance to excessive theological claims of progressive left on race and gender. Many evangelicals claim racial injustice isn't a problem and have come down on the wrong side of sexual abuse. Can you see that? I mean, look at the churches that have hidden sexual abuse. Uh, and in our effort to oppose what we think are not healthy methodologies for dealing with social justice, some of our churches are beginning to deny there's even a social injustice problem, which is ridiculous. <laughs> um, so when we go to that place, you can, see, you can see what we're doing to ourselves and our influence in the world. So that's just some food for thought. Okay, what drives people to progressivism? Um, sometimes they're hurt by legalism. And they think, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of it. Sometimes legalism seems irrelevant. And they'll look at it and they'll say, well, how's this changing the world? 
What's this doing? Look at everything that's happening in our world today. How's this going to make it better? Or um, progressive seems to make faith more appealing. If, if I can adjust what the Bible has to say about this topic, then that'll be one less stumbling block for people when I talk to them about Jesus. Um, we don't want to be haters. Boy, that's a strong one in our world right now. I don't want to, I don't want to be perceived as a hater, do you? So it's real easy to make compromises so you won't be perceived that way. Tolerance is the highest virtue. That is the highest virtue in our culture right now, unless you're intolerant of somebody's intolerance. Um, or it's okay to be intolerant of somebody's intolerance. Removes barriers to faith. Some people think if I get that out of the way. It becomes relevant, modern, and up-to-date. We, we need a new faith for a new generation. Um, it allows me to keep the faith and follow my heart. So I don't have to give up believing in Jesus, but I can follow my heart at the same time. I find a way to reconcile those two things. It eliminates things that are offensive and against my will. Um, so those are some, some of those, what drives people to progressivism. So here's a Tim Taylor quote I thought was really, really good. Um, when, we, when we begin not to take the Bible seriously because it offends us, Keller says, now what happens if you eliminate any from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? Not a good question. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as happens in friendship and marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition of it. Are we willing to allow God to say things that offend us or that we don't like? Are we going to let God be God or are we going to be God? Okay, what drives people to legalism? Faulty hermeneutic? Faulty hermeneutic I should have put also on the progressive side because some people move into progressive circles out of a study of Scripture, but their, but their hermeneutic kind of changes the authority of Scripture and how to interpret it. So that's the reason for some people. Anyway, what drives people to legalism? Fear. Uh, everything that's happening in our world is real easy to entrench back, kind of entrench back and take our stand, you know. Uh, reaction to extremes. Um, desire for firm boundaries. We all kind of want things nailed down, don't we? We don't like the gray. Easier to judge the world than to engage it. Well, that's for sure. It's a lot easier for us in churches to just sit around and talk about how bad the world is. It's something else to engage it in productive ways. Concrete and doable. Uh, some people think legalism does that. You know, this is concrete. This is doable. I know what you want me. I know what I'm supposed to believe, and I believe it. And freedom is too messy. Those are some of the reasons that uh, drive people to legalism. Now, here's a precaution. We've looked at two extremes. And we might be able to think, well, the answer is in the middle. Is it? Not if you mean this. So this is another Tim Keller quote. There are people who counsel that the way forward for church renewal is not to be too conservative or too liberal, but to take the middle path. At the most basic level, that's bad advice. Should we hold fewer historic orthodox doctrines than legalists, but not as few as liberals? Should we be a little concerned for racial and economic injustice, but not too much? Do we want to do only moderate critique of the idols and power structures of our culture? Do we want to be only moderately committed to the authority of the Bible? 
such an approach will leave us compromised and weakened. So it's not finding the middle path, right? But what is it finding? And I know we're going to take a really quick look at this, but uh, the third way is just the kingdom of God. The gospel is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Um, And so what is the way of the kingdom? If it's not legalism and it's not progressivism, what is the way of the kingdom? Well, it's the way of incarnation. God has come to rescue His people. Grace has arrived. God has broken into the world. He's come to be our Savior, our Deliverer, to rescue us from the consequences and power of sin. God became one of us. So if we're practicing the ways of the kingdom, we're going to take the way of incarnation into our relationships, aren't we? We're, we're, going, to, we're going to build relationships with them. We're going to become one of them and take the good news of the kingdom and embody that in relationship with other people. It's the way of Jesus who came healing and teaching and preaching the good news. You think about healing as addressing the needs of the multitudes and the people around them. You think about teaching as the content of what does it look like to live a kingdom life and the preaching of the good news that the kingdom of God is coming. It's breaking into the world. God's rule can restore things to the way it's intended to be. That's the good news that we have for the world. We, like the world, want things to be better. But the world's way is not going to make it better. Right? In fact, the methods that are being used to try to create, to try to overcome injustice is to create other injustices. It's it's to try to overcome the oppressor as you become the oppressed. And so we just the, the oppressed and the oppressor just keep shifting places because it's all done on the basis of power. That's not the way of Jesus. The world needs a vivid picture of how Jesus goes about doing that. The way of the cross, death as the way to life, Jesus' death and ours. And the meaning of the cross and how that changes everything. It's counterintuitive, but you, you can see it. The way of the resurrection, victory over sin, death, and Satan. The way of the exalted King Jesus, bowing to the Lordship of Christ. The way of the Spirit, the power for life and mission. This is a Spirit-empowered. The kingdom of God and the Spirit of God's activity in the world are all aligned as the same thing. The way of God's ongoing mission, making disciples who make disciples. And the way of the new heavens and the earth. New earth. God's making all things right. What the world is longing to have is what the kingdom of God is going to bring. But the world's not here. That's not the message of Christianity that a big part of the world is hearing. And, and so if we really focus on that third way and live in the power of the Spirit and the power of the Gospel and the power of the Kingdom of God, we are offering the world what it needs and not getting lost on the extremes. So here's one other quick thing. The Word word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I've got a friend, Vance Eubanks, who's doing another class right now that that I would love to go to on men in ministry. But he did this little thing about high grace, low grace, low truth, high truth. Jesus said full of grace and truth. Your high grace and low truth... It leads to liberalism or a permissive church because you're just graciously overlooking everything. If you go low grace, low truth, and low grace, um, you either have to re- you have to go back to control, some kind of manipulative control, or it just becomes a chaotic church. 
Uh, I mean, what's left if you take away grace and truth? There's really nothing left, right? If you go high truth, low grace, you've got, you've got legalism. You've got a judgmental church. But if you go high grace and high truth, you've got freedom, right? Uh, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So I've got a good friend that struggled with uh, homosexuality uh, and a number of other things. And in my opinion, while that she thinks that the expression of that could bring freedom, it's actually holding her in tremendous bondage. Her identity is tied up in this one view of herself. She's not... She might be tempted not to see the bigger picture. So freedom and a life-giving church, because that's, that's, that's where it's found. All right, I'm going to run through one thing. How God changes the world. These are things you already know. Disciple people to love, trust, and follow Jesus. People have no incentive to change the moral areas of their life if they don't fall in love with Jesus. Right? Serve with extraordinary love, grace, and hospitality. We ought to be the most loving, gracious, hospitable people on the face of the earth to everybody. No one excluded. Do justice and love mercy. Let Scripture do the heavy lifting. It's not about our pronouncements. What is God saying and how will I respond? I think helping people to come to realize that Jesus really lived and really rose from the grave leads them to say, okay, now what are we going to do? And then you have to begin to take what Jesus said seriously. What's he saying? You know, it doesn't have to be me telling them. Just let them discover what, what Jesus is saying. Walk in the power of the Spirit. This is not about us. It's not our strength. Be constant in prayer. Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. That's how God changes the world. And that's why you're here. And I think most of us who are here agree with that. And we're just renewing our focus and our intentionality, aren't we? We're just renewing our intentionality about doing what God's called us to do. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that what Jimmy said gave you life and helped your ministry out. We just invite you and encourage you to come back next week. Check out another track session for more great content from Renew.org.